In today's episode, we open our Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 18, verse 24, through 19, verse 22. And within this chapter, a transformative encounter occurs. A a gifted preacher named Apollos learns a deeper truth from Priscilla and Aquila, leading him to powerfully advocate for the way of God. And as Paul continues on his journey, he meets disciples who have yet to receive the fullness of the Holy Spirit. So we get to witness the momentous occasion when they are baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit descends upon them, igniting a spiritual fervor that rocks the city of Ephesus. Good morning and blessed Pentecost. Today is Monday, August 21st, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church, in Laverne, Minnesota. I'm so thankful for listeners like you who are joining us this morning, whose prayers and contributions support KFUO's radio ministry. We couldn't do it without you. But also many thanks to our sponsor, the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Check them out over at lhfmissions.org to learn about their work of translating and publishing and distributing Christ-centered materials around the world. That's lhfmissions.org. Well, our guest this morning is the Reverend Tim Winterstein, pastor of Faith Lutheran Church in East uh, Wenatchee, Washington. I think I pronounced that right. Good morning, Pastor Winterstein. Good morning. How are you? Well, I'm doing great. Nice to have you on the air. Nice to have you back. We had you for uh, 2 Samuel chapter 3, and now here we are in the book of Acts. Uh, Pretty different type of uh, scriptural literature, but... uh, an exciting book so far. It's always nice to see how these first missionary journeys started to catapult the church, and I'm glad to have you here today. Would you start our time together in prayer, please? Sure. Lord God, uh, as you sent your Spirit upon people so that they would testify of Christ, uh, that they would speak boldly uh, about uh, what you had done Uh, through your Son in his death and resurrection for the sake of the world, uh, we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit on us, uh, that we might hear uh, and speak uh, of what you have done, uh, that you have joined us to yourself, uh, that you have claimed us for your own in holy baptism, and that you uh, uh, continue to feed and nourish us as you fed and nourished uh, your church uh, after Pentecost. Uh, We ask that you would do so for Christ's sake. Amen, brother. Well, um, anything you want the folks to know? Maybe we should set the scene for folks who might not have heard yesterday's episode when we started uh, Acts chapter 1 through 23. It was Paul in Corinth and Antioch. Maybe just catch people up a little bit so we can have the context for what happens today. Yeah, this is, uh, this is toward the end of his, uh, his second missionary journey. Um, and, uh, um, Antioch is almost uh, the, um, or actually, well, where we are is the beginning of the third journey. Um, but uh, Antioch almost seems like a like a home base for Paul uh, quite often in the Book of Acts, and uh, so he uh, at the end of uh, chapter eighteen um, went to Antioch, stayed there for a while, and then is a uh, uh, leaves again um, uh, toward to go to toward Ephesus. Uh, and uh, that's where we find him in chapter 19. 
Um, and uh, seems to have a, he has a very strong connection with the Christians in, in Ephesus. Um, later, in fact, it's almost like he doesn't, he knows that if he goes back to Ephesus, he will have to stay there for a long period of time when he's on his way to Jerusalem. Um, so, uh, and obviously the, the letter to the Ephesians uh, speaks, uh, um, one, of the, one of the few letters where there doesn't seem to be a lot, there don't seem to be a lot of problems uh, in the church there. Um, he has a, obviously has a, uh, a, a, a good, a, a good relationship with the Christians there and, and, uh, uh, loves them. So. Well, we have here introducing, I suppose, Apollos, um, for the first time at, here in Ephesus. And that's where our, I guess our narrative begins. Why don't we go ahead and read the first half of our section, what we'll be talking about between now and the break, and that's verses 24 through 28. Here we go. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in the Spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside, and they explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who, through grace, had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus." All right. So tell us about Apollos, or maybe even a little bit of Alexandria. So who is this guy? He's entering the scene. He seems excited and on fire for the Lord, but maybe he just needs a little bit of redirection. Yeah, um, obviously uh, uh, had had learned a lot, um, and, uh, and perhaps in Alexandria, a uh, large uh, center of learning, and uh, uh, especially for... Um, uh, Hellenistic Jews and, uh, the, I mean, famous for its library. Um, but, uh, so he, so he's eloquent and he's competent. Uh, there's kind of this, these, these, uh, descript, descriptive words of him, uh, eloquent, competent, instructed, fervent. I, I kind of want to say fervent in the spirit. Um, and, uh, he speaks and teaches accurately. So there's a, uh, we kind of get this impression that he uh, he's learned rhetoric. He's learned how to how to speak well so that people uh, listen and hear clearly what he's saying. Um, he's and and it's a it's kind of an interesting. So he speaks and teaches accurately concerning Jesus, but he knows only the baptism of John. And so uh, it, apparently it seems that what he did know, he spoke accurately about it. Uh, but he didn't know everything. Um, and, uh, I, I, I kind of view the, the book of Acts as there's a lot of, uh, kind of ferment in the, at the time of the, in the church. And so it's kind of overlapping. You kind of have John's baptism, old Testament type things, pre Pentecost overlapping with, uh, the giving of the Holy spirit and new things coming in and before things kind of get settled. And, uh, Paulus seems to be part of that. 
Well, you talk about we, uh, Alexandria being a key center of learning. Of course, Apollos, they, they're sure to let us know that he's Jewish, and that's going to come in handy when he's refuting the Jews later. But Alexandria, they had that, that great library that we always think about, the, the Library of Alexandria. I guess it got destroyed in history. But yeah, he, he knows the Jewish scriptures well, what we call the Old Testament. He's been, you know, instructed in the way of the Lord, it says. So he's familiar with like the teachings of Jesus. And he and he talks about them. He conveys them with with enthusiasm, but he's limited when it comes to the knowledge of baptism. And I might even argue like how one becomes a Christian, those initiation rites. And and I think this to me really reflects a lot even in our own congregations. We have folks who they know like the the big key teachings of Jesus, maybe even those teachings that most people know, whether they believe or not. But have they really um, apprehended the or deep dove into the the scriptures to understand the the heart of it? So many people are kind of satisfied with the surface knowledge, and we see Apollos here. He's he's not satisfied with that. He wants to learn more. He wants to proclaim more. And when he's taken aside by Priscilla and Aquila. I think this is a wonderful example of taking a good Christian counsel, right? He doesn't get mad. He doesn't refute them. He doesn't say, I don't need to learn from you. So we really have a picture here of Christians coming together to make doctrine more clear so that it can be proclaimed all the more, wouldn't you say? Yeah, and and you're right. I I don't see any indication that um, Apollos is offended, uh, that they are explaining things more clearly. In fact, um, he, after this, uh, when he wants to go toward Corinth, um, the, the, the people in Ephesus, uh, encourage him and send him on. Uh, so they, they, uh, he, he, it, it actually increases his, uh, influence to be able to hear more clearly and, uh, uh, be instructed more, more diligently about what, what he has been speaking about. Right, we have Apollos, he's boldly preaching Jesus in the Ephesian synagogues. Um, but, you know, his—I think this is one of those cases where, too, we have to remember that when we proclaim the message to folks, it's very easy—two sides of this argument—it's very easy for us to proclaim it in such a way, even with passion, but not be 100% accurate. So, on the other side, we have to be very wary of those who seem like they know what they're talking about. They're very passionate, very convincing, yet maybe they're not 100% right. Um, on, the, on the other hand, um, we see here Priscilla and Aquila, they're not afraid to hear this man preach and say, you know, this guy, this guy has something when it comes to passion for the Lord, but we're going to have to <laughs> give him a little direction. Um, and it says that he had only experienced, or at least this is how I read it, He'd only experienced John's water baptism. Now, so the question is, when he says, though, he knew only the baptism of John, does that mean cognitively, intellectually, he didn't really know about Christian baptism? Um, or does that mean he didn't? He wasn't baptized? Except for maybe I, yeah. by John. I think, I think probably... That's how I take it, uh, that he's baptized by and with John's baptism, which is a baptism. I mean, that it kind of connects us to the next section because um, uh, Paul uh, 
talks about John's baptism as a baptism of repentance or a, and and a baptism of preparation for Jesus. And so it seems to me that uh, he is, although I, you know, I could see the possibility of the other, but uh, that's how I took it is that he uh, is baptized into John's baptism. And so there's still, there's something lacking. Uh, and perhaps at some point around verse 26, uh, he uh, is baptiz- baptized into the, the baptism of Jesus uh, for the forgiveness of sins there. So um, no way to know for sure. But uh, um, I think that at some point in here, because Paul takes him, Paul and Apollos, uh, they show, this is the beginning, but Apollos shows up numerous times and especially uh, in um, First Corinthians. So I think at some point uh, he must be uh, baptized into Christ's name uh, and not only John's baptism. Well, let's talk a little bit about that. Now, we're going to have a special guest on uh, September 1st, which is a free text first Friday. We're going to be talking about baptism specifically and its connection with uh, history and the Old Testament, etc. But I guess just for the moment, let's talk a little bit about the difference between John's baptism and Jesus's baptism, because he knows only John's baptism, which again, I think conveys that he'd only been baptized in the manner in which John was baptizing people, or by John. But that also goes to suggest that he, because he hadn't been yet baptized into Jesus, he also doesn't know a lot about that type of baptism. Uh, Maybe he's heard of it, but doesn't know how to communicate that to people. So he's going around, clearly saved by faith, right? When we talk about salvation and and baptism being the primary means by which uh, uh, God brings people into the kingdom, obviously Apollo's here, has been saved, given faith through the Word, so he's yet to be baptized, still should be, and I believe is, but at the same time, um, let's talk about these differences. Like, what is the difference between John's baptism and the baptism that Jesus proclaims? Yeah, I, um, <clears throat> John's baptism, as Paul say in 19 verse uh, 4, that it's a baptism of repentance, and so John's baptism uh, is actually a kind of symbolic baptism. It's a people were being baptized by John. They're all going out to him at the Jordan River, um, confessing their sins, and uh, so so it's 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 almost a here's a symbol of what you've done. You've confessed your sins, but it's always meant to point toward Jesus. It's unto the forgiveness of sins. That is toward the forgiveness which is coming in Jesus, which. John himself uh, proclaims, behold, the Lamb of, of God, who takes away the sin of the world. So there can, there's almost a two-part thing. And, and a, apart from the coming of Jesus, uh, it's, not, it's not complete. It's a, it's a, we're confessing our sins, but where is the forgiveness? It's coming in Jesus. And in, even there, even in the Gospels, there's an overlap between John's baptism and Jesus' baptism, because there's this controversy at one point about who's baptizing whom and whether uh, Jesus is baptizing more people or et cetera, et cetera. And John says, well, he must increase, but I must decrease. So there's, there's clearly, uh, I mean, I know people have probably have disagreed about this, but I, I take it as a, a clear difference. These are two different kinds of things happening, uh, but they are tied together by the forgiveness of sins. 
And that's what Jesus' baptism brings because it's baptism into him uh, who is the forgiveness of sins. So um, I take it as a preparatory baptism, John's, I mean, um, and but it's it's always headed toward Jesus. It's not you can't separate it from Jesus because it's that it's aiming at Jesus. Um, and so there seems to be a preparation that has happened both with Apollos and with these uh, disciples in Ephesus uh, that uh, it has not yet come to its fulfillment in Christ. Yes, certainly John's baptism is one of repentance. I, there's a lot of symbolism, I believe, in John's baptism, which we're always nervous to talk about symbolism when it comes to baptism, because, well, we have Christian brethren who believe that baptism is merely symbolic, Jesus' baptism, and, mm -hmm. and that's not the case. But John's probably was, at least I would argue, it's preparing, as you said, the way of the Lord. It's preparing for the coming of the Messiah, making a people prepared for the Lord, right? Luke 1. Uh, and Jesus comes along, and just like with the, the, the rainbow, just like with Passover, just like with so many things, Jesus takes something that exists and gives it new power and new meaning. Because the Jews would have practiced various forms of ritual washings or baptisms or ablutions in the first century. They had purification rites from the Torah. Uh, proselytes or Gentiles were required to undergo a, a baptism as a part of their conversion process. Uh, Jews who wanted to enter the temple in Jerusalem had to uh, immerse or wash themselves in a, a ritual purity or baptism. Um, so we see all that. And so John the Baptist comes along, and he seems unique even from, from those instances of baptism. So while ritual baptisms were regular and they could be repeated as often as they needed, John comes along and he says, here's a one-time act which connects to your repentance and, you, and it's preparing you for the coming of the kingdom of God. And then Jesus comes along and he proclaims that people should be baptized. And as you said, there was some arguments and, um, and even disagreements within the first century Christians over, over some of these things like, you know, the Judaizers and the circumcision party and, and other stuff. So, you know, the church is trying to feel itself out. It wants to be faithful to the Lord's will, but we're just humans, right? So we're, we're still kind of trying to make sure that we're doing things right. And I, and I see this whole situation caught up in that activity of the early church, trying to get things right. Yeah, I um, I mean, I think this is the thing, you know, people want to find uh, kind of prescriptive things in the book of Acts, uh, but the reality is it's a descriptive account of the way things went, and not all of the things that happen are things that are for every Christian of all time to do. Um, it's, 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 everything is kind of, it's, a, it's still kind of a little mixed up. It's still... Uh, hasn't quite been sorted. And that that's really what I think the beginning of a Acts 19 is one of the places where we see that. Absolutely. And so then he begins to speak in these synagogues. He's proclaiming boldly. That's another thing that we've noticed in the book of Acts, right? Where they, Paul and others, they go to synagogues and they proclaim the word of God in the synagogues. And that's been a little difficult over the past few weeks for us to get our minds around, because that's not the way in which we worship today. 
but it, he does. He's able to have an audience through these synagogues. And verse 28, he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures, which of course are the Old Testament, the, the Hebrew scriptures, that the Christ was Jesus. I both love it and sometimes um, am remiss when I see things in the Bible that say like, and he showed them from the scriptures you know, that Jesus was the Christ, but we but wouldn't it be nice, even though we know how to do it ourselves, wouldn't it be nice if we could see exactly what he was saying? No, I think that would always uh, affirm us a little more. But perhaps Luke thinks, okay, you guys know how Jesus is proven from the scriptures, so it's enough for me just to say that he did. Yeah, I find, I find Paul, Paul uh, has, seems to have a two-part a two um, uh, thing sometimes where he will say, that um the uh he will he will kind of prove the christ from the scriptures and then he'll prove that jesus is that one um and so i mean these are people who know the scriptures um and i think that's one thing that um is slightly different from our context when when they're when it's primarily within or uh an an offshoot or a development out of um, you know, first century Judaism, you, you, you have people in the synagogue who know the scriptures, uh, well. And, uh, so Apollos can say, and Paul does this, look at these scriptures, look, here's what the description of the Messiah is, the Christ. Now, let me show you how Jesus fits that. At least that's how I imagine, uh, it, it, it must've gone. Here, here's what the Christ is. Look, look, you know this. You know what the scriptures say. Now, now let's uh, look at Jesus and see if he matches that description. And that that seems to be um, uh, at least part of the approach. You know, I like to try to anticipate the questions that listeners might have. And I think as we look over this whole thing that's happened, right, this educated Jew, Apollos, He's from this cultural mega center, Alexandria. So he has knowledge of lots of different customs. He's eloquent, competent in the scriptures, partly because he's also a Jew, right? So he's grown up in the scriptures and he's been instructed. It doesn't say by whom in the way of the Lord, but he's going out there and he's accurately concerning things of Jesus. So here's the question. If he hasn't been baptized, I anticipate people might wonder, well, how can he be so passionate for Christ and yet hasn't yet received the Holy Spirit? Or, or has he? How might we explain that to people? Because as you said, the next thing that happens is that Apollos heads off to Corinth, and then Paul comes to Ephesus, and he finds more people who believe but don't have the Holy Spirit. And I think we're getting teased that a little bit with, with Apollos' situation. How do we understand that? How do we understand his... I mean, is he saved? And if he's if he's not, then how can an unbeliever be speaking in these ways? How would you explain that to folks? Yeah, I, I think uh, what I usually say is something along the lines of, uh, in the book of Acts, these things go together. Uh, the Holy Spirit, baptism, faith. Uh, and at one time, but they don't always happen in the same order. Um, and so when when it says that he is, in in 25 um fervent or excited in the spirit um stirred up in, in a good way 
Um, I take that to I take that to be the Holy Spirit, not His own Spirit. Paul, in uh, the only other time this appears is in in Romans twelve, uh, where Paul is is encouraging and exhorting the Christians to to be this uh, uh, fervent in the Spirit or or excited in the Spirit, um, and so. I take that to mean that he has the Holy Spirit. So he has faith and he has the Holy Spirit, but the the baptism in the name of Jesus, which is the baptism Jesus gives, um, that that hasn't happened yet. So I, I think in the book of Acts, it's it, it's it's good that we not uh, try to pin pin down too closely the order of things because it happens in different ways sometimes. People receive the Holy Spirit and then they're baptized. Sometimes they're baptized and then they receive the Holy Spirit. Uh, they they believe and then they're baptized and then you know. So uh, I think that that's that's what's happening here with Apollos is is he believes he has the Holy Spirit and at some point here, perhaps after Priscilla and Aquila, maybe that's the thing that they explain to him because the the way. Uh, the way in 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 the book of Acts is almost a technical term, and it becomes a technical term for for Christianity. I take that all the way back to um, to Acts eight with Philip and the Ethiopian, when when they are on the way, while Philip is explaining to him from Isaiah Jesus, and there's at some point when it doesn't explicitly spell it out, but at some point he must have said. This way goes via baptism because the Ethiopian says, "Here's water. Why shouldn't I be baptized?" So, so it's clear that in the book of Acts, this is what the way of God looks like. It, it goes through baptism, and so I suspect that uh, that's at least part of what Priscilla and Aquila tell him. Uh, look, this this is the completion, uh, both the completion and the beginning of of the way is uh, baptism into Jesus. So. Um, I th- that's that's how I would kind of describe it broadly. Well, although we rightly try to do things decently and in good order and according to God's will, I mean, this messiness of God's salvific activity amongst the people, yeah, it's not prescriptive in that this is how it has to happen. It's descriptive in this is how it is happening. But brother, isn't that how it happens today too? There are people who are saved prior to baptism, right? And of course, then they, wanting to fulfill God's will and receive all his gifts, get baptized. But people come to faith before baptism. People come to faith after baptism. People come to faith uh, even before they know all the specifics of the faith. I guess that would be all of us, right? Because do any of us know everything? So, so I, I, I see that as, yes, we don't want to look at this and go, okay, well, this is how it always is. But it is a nice reminder that everything's not really clean cut even in our day. I mean, things haven't changed. It's not as though no one has faith until they're baptized in a very specific way. God works organically in, in, our, in, our, in our lives. Yeah, I agree. And, and, and uh, you don't, don't have to be a pastor for very long before you realize that uh, things are not uh, neat and tidy when it comes to uh, conversion, faith, the work of the Holy Spirit, at least from our perspective. Um, you know, it, it, things happen. And I think, I think probably, uh, you just all, all you need to do is kind of look at the difference between those who are baptized as infants and those who are baptized as adults. Um, there's a difference there in how the Holy Spirit is working. 
one is kind of developing out of the faith given in baptism and one develops kind of toward baptism. Uh, so it, it, uh, it, w- it is good for us to remember that not everything works. Uh, you know, we would like it to be very, a very neat order, um, be baptized and then, then be taught or be a Christian and then be baptized. But that's just, that doesn't work that way. The Holy Spirit has his own ways of, of uh, bringing people to faith. We're heading into a break, but I just want to share my own example, which is that I grew up in a church body, the Southern Baptists, that did not baptize, of course, until someone could confess that they believed, Um, which is interesting because uh, in that faith tradition, one must be baptized in a certain way even to be saved, uh, and yet you can't be baptized until you give your heart to Jesus, and of course, baptism doesn't do anything for you. It's just symbolic. But aside from all that, I because I grew up in a Christian household, I don't recall any time in my life when I did not believe, even for the 14 years prior to being baptized. So the Holy Spirit works faith when and where he pleases, and through the Word, baptism being, I don't want to say merely, but baptism being a combination of that Word plus, of course, a visible element. But God's doing his work in a good and decent order. He's bringing people to faith by the Word. But the way we experience that looks different from time to time. Um, I tell you what, we're going to go to a break, folks. Do not go anywhere when we return. Uh, Pastor Winterstein and I will keep on going. We'll actually head into chapter 19 and, and hear how Paul is faring in Ephesus. We'll see you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo, and with me today is the Reverend Tim Winterstein, a pastor of Faith Lutheran Church in East Wenatchee, Washington. Dear friends, whether you're tuning in over the airwaves or catching up via our podcast, right? You can download that on your favorite podcast platform. Maybe you're streaming on KFUO.org or you're using the KFUO app. I don't care how you connect. I'm just so glad that you've joined us this morning. And if you have thoughts or questions about the show, you can reach me at pastorboo at gmail.com or find me on Facebook. Be sure to mention how you listen. I say I don't care, but I'm always interested on all the different ways in which KFUO offers you to connect. And so it's nice to hear how you are able to hear the show. Well, back to our text, Pastor, before the break, we kind of, I think we've gotten about as much as we can out of this first text. You know, we don't have a lot of uh, verses to go through, and we have an hour to do them, so it's nice to kind of just relax and go nice and slow through it. Um, anything else about this Apollo speaking boldly in Ephesus that you'd like the people to know before we move into Paul in Ephesus in chapter 19? 
just I think that that Apollos his the power of his uh, word and testimony is evident in the beginning of First Corinthians uh, when people are actually um, joining sides. I'm with Paul or I'm with Apollos, and uh, and so clearly uh, he is uh, you know a powerful speaker. Uh, Paul says, "I planted and Apollos watered." So there's um, he he. He goes on, uh, continues to uh, uh, boldly proclaim Christ in Corinth. He does, and he becomes a force for good in the church, um, yeah, despite people's misgivings. And that is an interesting text that you bring up, because isn't that often the case? We even see that online, and I don't think it's intentional, but you'll see certain pastors who maybe have a charisma or a dynamism, and they, and they, they kind of get they become authorities by means of their passionate delivery. And yet, and yet, right, all pastors um, are contributing to the kingdom of God. And so, and Paul now, he's no slouch either. So people were kind of saying, hey, I'm in the party of Paul, and I'm in the party of Apollos. And then, of course, you had some well-meaning folks who are like, well, I'm just in the party of Jesus. Right. Of course, Paul sets them all straight. Yeah, that's a great text. Um, let's get to 19. I'm going to read. Well, I'm just going to read until it makes sense to stop, and we'll find out where that ends up being, starting with verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. And there he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Oh, into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on him, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. Let's pause there at the end of verse 7. So Paul comes to Corinth, and he finds some disciples who have never even heard about the Holy Spirit. What is going on here? Yeah, again, very, very strange uh, sort of in terms of how we understand or think things might have gone. Um, and and I think here there's a distinction in terms of uh, because as we believe the Holy Spirit is the one who creates faith, the Holy Spirit is the one who uses uh, the Word of God to open ears and hearts, and so th- so the Holy Spirit has has acted on on them. Um, they believed, um, but they have not received the fullness of the Holy Spirit. So it's almost as if you have a pre and post Pentecost kind of thing happening, because the disciples prior to Pentecost, if they believe at all. It's the work of the Holy Spirit, and yet the fullness of the Holy Spirit has not sort of has not been poured out uh, in this in this kind of bold, apparent way. And and so I, I think that's I think that's what's happening is that we have a, a little Pentecost happening in Ephesus here, um, and even verse seven. I, I read I was reading a commentary that talks. Oh, no, big, it doesn't really mean anything. Uh, there were about twelve men, but I don't know. It's hard for me to get away from mm-hmm. from Pentecost and the apostles. Uh, obviously, there there were um, 
at the time of Pentecost, there were there were twelve. I mean, they had re they Matthias had, but uh, it's hard for me to because he could have said there were about ten if it's a lower number, and he could have said there were about fifteen if it's a it's higher. Um, but he chooses the word twelve, and I I, I think that that uh, this is a this is a little Pentecost here. Yeah, I mean, even if there were thirteen or ten or fifteen. The fact that he says about 12, he's, I, I, I agree with you. He's wanting to evoke in our minds the apostles, uh, you know, he's or the 12 tribes of Israel, right? He's wanting to evoke in our minds God's work amongst the church. And so, yeah, I think it's fascinating to see this. You know, this is Paul's third missionary journey, as you said. He's, he stopped by briefly in Ephesus on his second missionary journey, but this time, and we don't know this specifically yet, I don't believe, but he's going to hang out there for about three years. In fact, we don't learn that till the next chapter. So he's here for quite a while. He's going to be stationed there for about three years. And so um, Apollos is off in Corinth, and he comes and he runs into these folks. But not only do we see these many Pentecostal activities, I think it's worth talking about them specifically, because yes, we talked about them when we discussed Pentecost, but we have Pentecostal folks who call themselves Christians, uh, some of whom are. Some Pentecostal groups are so far removed from Christian doctrine, I, I hesitate to call them Christians. So it's tough. And if you're a Pentecostal out there, please don't be insulted, but definitely con- consult you know, uh, what your church teaches and believes to, Christ- to Scripture. But, but here, specifically, I want to point out speaking in tongues. right? So when he comes to them and says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They said no. And they said, we've not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. And I've heard growing up, sort of in a different church tradition than I represent now, that, well, one of the reasons why they didn't, uh, they knew that they hadn't received the Holy Spirit is because they had not yet received any of the gifts, the chief of which is speaking in tongues. But I would argue that it's much simpler than that. When they say, no, they haven't had the Holy Spirit, they admit that they don't know what they're talking about by immediately saying, we don't even know what a Holy Spirit is. Yeah. So I would argue they had received the Holy Spirit, especially as it comes to having faith, but they, because they hadn't been taught what that is, then they didn't really know that God, the Holy Spirit, is working within them. And so John baptizes them, I'm sorry, pardon me, Paul uh, baptizes them in the name of the Lord Jesus, and then of course they receive these gifts of the Holy Spirit, which is a little bit different than just the Holy Spirit working faith. But you can see how this narrative might convince some people, especially if they take it prescriptively, that this is how it's supposed to be. You're supposed to receive the baptism, and then later a special baptism of the Holy Spirit. And that we would refute that, wouldn't we, brother? Yeah, and and I mean, honestly, if you sort, you could you could actually take it in the in the way that it seems to have actually gone in the in the early uh, church after the Book of Acts, which is uh, verse six, essentially comes to be something like what. Did, later develops into confirmation um, as a, the sealing of the Holy Spirit uh, that is that is attached actually to baptism, not not a separate thing. It later, you know, uh, in in the the Western Church at least, it, 
it becomes separated from baptism, um, partly I think because of distance. And so we'll sit, wait until the bishop can get there, etc. But, um, but uh, really attached to baptism as the promise of the Holy Spirit, uh, you have been sealed. You've been, you've been, you've been given the, what Paul sometimes says, like the first fruits of the Holy Spirit. So um, th- these aren't, these aren't, even though they're, they're separate, maybe discrete actions, it's all part of the same thing. Uh, it's all part of the same uh, uh, event, uh, maybe we could say, um, in 5 and 6. They're baptized and they receive the Holy Spirit. Those go together in the book of Acts. And, um, and, and speaking in tongues, I don't see any evidence in the book of Acts that that means anything other than proclaiming Jesus in languages that people can understand. Yeah, as I consult commentaries, of course, those um, of more newer traditions, like the Arminian tradition, that is decision theology kind of stuff, uh, or Pentecostalism, yeah, they're always going to point to this and say, well, this speaking in tongues was different from the speaking in tongues at Pentecost. That involved languages, this involves some sort of heavenly worship. I agree with you wholeheartedly. This is no different than the tongues. In fact, I think the connection is supposed to be made that this is the exact same thing that happened to Pentecost, which involves other languages. But then Paul here is explaining the purpose of John's baptism in relation to Jesus. You know, John's baptism was of repentance, so they would believe in Jesus who would come after him. The question I have, and maybe you don't have an answer for it or a good answer for it, or maybe you do, I hope you do, Hmm. but John's baptism. Was it valid in the sense of a salvific baptism, right? Was it valid in terms of, like, would people need to be rebaptized if they had had John's baptism? Because we see people getting rebaptized here, but elsewhere, Scripture doesn't really tell us if people baptized by John were customarily baptized a second time with an apostolic baptism. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think I think it is a little obscure because we could we could think of um, the disciples of John, who then followed Jesus. We don't have an explicit word that says that they were presumably they were baptized in the bapti- baptized in, into the baptism of John um, as his disciples. Um, we don't have an explicit word that they were then baptized into Jesus' baptism, although. I think there's probably a distinction to be made when you actually have Jesus there uh, and he's saying stuff to you, which is what we believe baptism is. Baptism is, is not anything other than Jesus saying, today you will, you will be with me. Um, and uh, so, so there's a distinction, I think, to be made between walking around with Jesus and then after Jesus' ascension. Um, and so I would take this as the... I guess I would take this as the post-Jesus ascension. This seems to be the normative thing, that John's baptism is no longer uh, uh, operative in terms of salvation. So they've heard the word. I mean, Paul, Paul says, when you believed, I don't think he's being facetious in uh, verse 2. So it, it, uh, they've heard the word and they believed in Jesus. Uh, but they haven't received that baptism which Jesus commanded in Matthew 28, for example. Um, so 
I would take this as normative in terms of baptism. In other words, you couldn't be now sort of baptized into a baptism of repentance, confessing your sins, and that would be sufficient. It, it requires the baptism that Jesus gives. But I would also argue, though, that if for some reason you come to faith through the Word and through no fault of your own never received any baptism, we still get to put our faith, hope, and trust in God who works faith through the Word. Absolutely. Um, so sure, sure. it's, it's it, yeah, it's, and we'll talk about this more, folks, if you're interested in this topic of baptism on September 1st. But um, if it's okay with you, I'd like to go ahead and get the last few verses of our text for this morning under our belt. I'm going to read verses 8 through 10. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Brother, take us through these last few verses. Yeah, so this seems to be Paul's regular um, approach to things. He, he uh, even though he sort of views himself and uh, is viewed as the apostle to the Gentiles, uh, almost everywhere he goes, he goes into the synagogue first. Uh, and this follows the pattern of that Jesus himself gives, uh, where in Matthew's gospel, for example, at first he sends his disciples only to the, quote, lost sheep of Israel. Uh, and then in Matthew 28, all to all the nations or the Gentiles. Uh, and then so Paul takes that as a pattern, uh, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. Uh, it's salvation. The, the proclamation of the gospel is, is first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. Uh, and so he does that when wherever he goes. He goes to the synagogue first. Uh, and proclaims Jesus there, and then he goes and proclaims to to Gentiles or to non-Jews. Uh, so uh, that and that and then in verse ten, the same sort of thing, right? They they hear the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks, um, and uh, this this is the and and I mean this is the main cultural distinction is in terms of the early church. It's it's what Paul deals with throughout his letters. Um, how and in in the book of Acts too, how do we how do we welcome in these Gentiles who have believed clearly, but they never were part of the covenant that was given to Abraham? So um, that that seems to be the major discussion point in the in the beginning of the church. Um, Paul goes and proclaims the gospel to both, um, and I mean verse nine again, uh, the way uh, this becomes a. Uh, a, and sometimes it's an actual physical way, like the road that Philip and the Ethiopian are on, uh, and then other times it's it's simply the the kind of explanation and the following of Jesus. Um, and uh, Paul Paul stays there for a long time in, in Ephesus, and people coming in and out of Ephesus. I assume that I I take that last verse to mean that. The people who hear Paul in and out of Ephesus go to the places where they're from, uh, and so that this is how the gospel spreads. Since Paul is just staying there, um, the the all the residents of Asia, it the gospel goes in and out of Ephesus, 
um, from those who are who are traveling through. Yeah, and I think we see a little bit of an example of uh, shaking the dust off your feet, so to speak, because it says when people became stubborn and continued in unbelief and then started speaking evil of the way, which is what Christianity was called before it was called Christian and evidently sometime after, uh, but he withdraws from them and he reasons daily in the hall of Tyrannus. Now, I don't think we have any information about Tyrannus except that, well— my 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 uh, resources say that he was a man at Ephesus whose lecture hall Paul preached for <laughs> for two years. Yeah. So all we know about him is from this verse. But I'm still going to ask you to speculate. Isn't it interesting that he goes from the place where God's word is regularly proclaimed and and purportedly people want to come and engage it there to now he's I don't know will we call it like a storefront <laughs> right? He's now at a at a, a place that's owned by probably, I'm certainly a believer, but probably not, or I don't know, maybe not a believer, maybe he's just renting the place. I don't know. What yeah. do you think about this situation? Yeah, I think I think there are probably at least the two possibilities I've I've sort of read about uh, that that this is an actual person who has this place that Paul, and, and possibly it's it's something like in Athens where people would get together and discuss various kinds of uh, philosophical ideas. Uh, it might be something like that, um, like at uh, the Areopagus, um, um, or it's a. Uh, so it could be kind of a, and it could, it may not even be a, an actual. It may just be this place that's kind of named after him. Maybe he's not even there anymore. I don't know, um, but it seems like those are probably the two things. There, this is a person who owns this place, and people come and talk about things, uh, or. Uh, it's uh, kind of just, um, you know, like saying Areopagus. Well, here's a, it's, you know, Mars isn't actually there, but uh, it's kind of a place where people get together. And I, I'm unsure which, which of those is the actual case, but. Uh, um, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I, yeah, I was thinking too, when I first read it, without any sort of influence by commentators, I would say that this was some sort of, I guess public meeting place, very Areopagus-like, right? Maybe not necessarily even a marketplace, or maybe that too, but just a place where people could go, a community center. Maybe that's what the word I'm looking for. And the commentators seem to bounce back and forth between that. Mm -hmm. Like either it's a community center, or maybe this Tyrannus guy was a, an important teacher or philosopher, and so this is the place where he taught. And so either he's a believer that's lending out the use of his mm -hmm. building, or Paul has said, Hey, listen, I got some philosophies to talk to people about. Can I use your space? And he rents it. Again, we don't know. Just speculation. But I think sometimes it's fun to look at that and just see yeah. how things are on the ground. Yeah, and it, possibly. I mean, a lot of times when people's people are mentioned by name, uh, it, it's possible also that this person was a Christian who was well known to those to whom Luke is writing. So uh, mm -hmm. I think there are several options there, at least three. Uh, in terms of what this place might be. It reminds me a little bit when I was at um, one of my congregations, we had a ministry that we started that reached out to people with, of course, the message of the gospel, but also with things that they might need, uh, hygiene kits, food, that sort of stuff. And we went into a, an underreached area to do that, a little bit of an urban area. And as Lutherans, though, we're like, well, we could work with some of these churches here. No, there weren't any Lutheran churches there of any flavor, 
but there were other types of churches and no one would really receive us. No one wanted to partner with us for this, you know, uh, this, this attempt to reach people with, uh, with the provisions. And then also, of course, tell them about Jesus. And so the only person in the community that really wanted to work with us was the local tattoo parlor. <laughs> they cared about their community. They were sort of indifferent to our message of Christ, but basically told us if we were willing to go out there and help people with food and help people help the homeless population and talk with the folks who were struggling with drug addiction, then we could use their sidewalk. When it was raining, they let us come into the parlor and use their, their open space. And, and so this is what I kind of see here. Paul is going to the place where you expect Christians to, or in this case, believers, where he expects believers, or at least those familiar with the scriptures, to receive the message and become believers in Jesus, um, and yet they reject him. And so he ends up going to perhaps uh, maybe some sort of secular place to do it. So I don't know, but it's just a fascinating way to see how God is working through the early church. Anything else about any of the texts we covered today as we make our way toward the end of the program? Um, I don't know. We've, we've touched on quite a few of the, the points. Um, uh, you know, it seems to me that there, there is a distinction though, between what Paul does in various places and what happens on a regular Sunday morning. Um, Paul is in a kind of a different, he's kind of this on the evangelism side of things, um, where he reasons, he argues, he speaks of Christ, but there's kind of there's there's a there's much more of a mixed audience than there would be like say in a given obviously you have various kinds of people who are who might show up on a given Sunday morning but um, but for the most part you know normal you know, regular Christian preaching is to primarily to Christians and and Paul is doing something different I think that's one thing kind of to be um, aware of uh, and also. I, I I wonder if Apollos is not the author of the book of Hebrews, uh, just as a throw that out there as sure. a speculation. He he knows things so well, and Hebrews would fit with the whole the way that he goes about things, explaining from the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Uh, he that's what happens in the book of Hebrews. So I I kind of lean toward Apollos in that. But. Well, you bring up some really good points here, and that is that Paul isn't the parish priest. He isn't the parish pastor. He isn't the uh, he isn't doing what we think of when we think of say Sunday morning worship. Um, and I'm glad you illustrated that because despite how many times we tell people that Acts is descriptive, not prescriptive, there are many among us and those in other traditions who look to Acts and say this is the way the church should be, and and then they think of Paul, for example. And yes, I've always proclaimed, and, and rightly so, I believe, and it sounds like you agree, that the primary function of the divine service is to um, equip believers. You know, we don't evangelize by going out and inviting a bunch of unbelievers to come into our worship services. Although, I guess we do that sort of, but that's just not the primary way that God has chosen to make disciples. Just like we don't hand out Bibles to people willy-nilly and expect a lot of fruit from that. Um, but we see him doing that. We see him going out into these mixed groups and proclaiming Christ and arguing with people, and and, and he's he's doing this in boldness so much so that you know he gets his butt whooped sometimes, right? Because he gets in trouble in these cities. But the point is, is that you brought up, and I think it's worth highlighting. Yeah, I, I this is not this is something different than maybe ordinary congregational worship. 
And so far yeah. as your uh, hunch about uh, Hebrews, yeah, I could buy that for sure. Yeah. You know, we don't know exactly who the author is. It was presumed to be Paul for so long, but I think Apollos is absolutely uh, an excellent candidate for that authorship, although I don't know that we'll ever know. Probably not, at least until we meet the author. And then we won't care. (laughs) And then it won't even bother us a bit. Well, I tell you what, folks, I'd like to thank my guest this morning. He's the Reverend Tim Winterstein, pastor of Faith Lutheran Church in East Wenatchee, Washington. Pastor, thanks for being back on the show again. Thank you for having me. Friends, tomorrow we continue with chapter 19. And in a whirlwind of faith and conflict, but also perseverance, the city of Ephesus becomes, well, really a hotspot of spiritual confrontation. As the message of the way threatens the revered temple of Artemis and the silversmith's livelihood, an uproar ensues, causing tumult and chaos in the theater. And Paul's relentless passion, though, to spread the gospel sees both fervent support, but also violent opposition. So we'll journey with him as he navigates the turbulent waters of belief and business with plans to move, despite the peril to move forward with the message. Folks, that's what we're talking about tomorrow. Uh, So until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word.